Hello there, everyone. I am John Allen, the president, editor, and grand poobah of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. This is our showcase weekly video, Last Week in the Church, where we take stale news that's already happened, throw it in a skillet, sprinkle over some spice and our secret sauce, and serve it up piping hot. Here's what we've got for you this week. Number one, a rare bit of good news for Vatican prosecutors in the trial of the century from the unlikely location of Switzerland. Number two, a stale cover-up charge against Pope Benedict XVI gets reheated. Number three, after a sex abuse scandal is a money scandal next for the wealthiest archdiocese in the Catholic world. Number four, the Pope and pets. Is it selfless to have dogs and cats, but not human children? And finally, number five, when Italy sneezes, the rest of the Catholic world catches cold. Change is coming for the Italian Catholic Church. That's what we've got for you this week, so please stick around. All right. First of all, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, January 10th. It's a happy day for my wife, Elise, and I, because tomorrow we will wake up and be on our way back home to the United States for a couple of weeks for our first return visit in more than two years. We're going to see Elise's wife, Elise's wife, we're going to see Elise's family in Denver, the Mile High City, and then we will be moving on to Balmy, Key West, Florida, where we got married two years ago and where we will celebrate our anniversary. We will continue to talk to you from these locales, so, you know, you'll be able to keep up with our peregrinations, but in any event, we're very excited. So we begin this week, speaking of being excited, with another group of people who were probably a little more excited than they have been for a long time, and that is the prosecution team in the Vatican's trial of the century, this mega trial featuring accusations of fraud, embezzlement, fleecing, bilking, being caught with your fingers in the cookie jar against a wide array of defendants, including for the very first time a cardinal, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, Things did not go particularly well for the prosecution through much of the second half of 2021. And probably when those prosecutors rang in the new year, they weren't wishing one another a happy new year. They were wishing one another a happier new year. And at least at the very beginning, 2022 has brought them a small ray of sunshine. This from an appeals court in Switzerland. Now, why Switzerland? Well, here's the thing. One of the defendants in this trial is an Italian financier by the name of Raffaele Mincione. If you don't know Mincione, he is known as a kind of wheeler and dealer specializing in real estate deals, but not exclusively that. Apparently, he's now 56, but in his younger days, Mincione was also apparently a bit of a playboy once dated Heather Mills, who went on to be married to Paul McCartney for a while. In any event, Mincioni is one of the guys who was involved in this London financial deal in which the Vatican Secretary of State used money from Peter Spence 
to buy a $200 million share in a piece of property in the Chelsea neighborhood of London on Sloan Avenue, and then spent roughly another $200 million trying to buy their way out of the first deal. It's all a complete mess, but in any event, Mincioni is one of the individuals indicted by Vatican prosecutors, although technically in the fall, prosecutors, when they went before the court, basically to ask for a reset, to have all of the charges withdrawn, then to be refiled. They weren't granted that, but they were given the ability to withdraw charges against some of the defendants, including Mincioni. So right now, Raffaele Mincioni is technically not facing any charges at all. However, the idea is, of course, that those charges are going to be refiled and the trial will go ahead. The next hearing is set for January 25th, and we'll see where we are then. In the meantime, the Vatican prosecution team had sent requests through the normal diplomatic channel to have the assets of Mincioni and another financier also involved in the London debacle, a guy by the name of Gianluigi Torzi, to have their assets frozen so they couldn't, you know, I don't know, take the money they allegedly bilked from the Vatican and park it in indecipherable, unreachable offshore accounts or, you know, hide it under a mattress or whatever. And the countries where they filed these requests, principally the UK and Switzerland, dutifully complied. So for the last year or so, Mincioni's assets have been frozen in Swiss banks. Now, Mincioni's lawyers recently filed an appeal with Swiss courts asking for those assets to be unfrozen. And they argued that the fact that he couldn't get to his money, which is estimated at around 60 million euro, was causing irreparable harm both to Mincioni's corporate interests. He runs a holding company, the, the WRM Group, and they were claiming he's not able to pay his bills because he couldn't get to that cash. They were also claiming he's not able to provide for his own needs and, and that of his family. Now, I, I should say a similar appeal had been made by the lawyers of Gianluigi Torzi in the UK several months ago. And in that case, the judge in the UK not only gave Torzi his money back, but said that the filings that the Vatican prosecutors had made to demonstrate why Torzi might be guilty were full of misrepresentations, omissions. He called it essentially a shockingly vacuous legal representation and kind of blew it out of the water. In this case, however, the Swiss court actually refused Mincioni's request to get his money back. Number one, they said that Mincioni's lawyers had failed to provide documentation to show what Mincioni's total assets were, so they had no way of knowing whether the fact that he couldn't get to the 60 million was or was not actually causing him harm. But the thing that's going to make Vatican prosecutors happy is that Mincioni had made a couple of arguments as part of his filing. One, he had argued that the Vatican was denying him a fair trial because his lawyers couldn't get access to all the materials they wanted. And that was a reference to these famous recordings the Vatican prosecutors made of their interrogations of witnesses, including the star witness, Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca. 
The Swiss court basically ruled, look, we've reviewed the penal code in the Vatican. It's based on the 1913 penal code in Italy. It's very similar to the Swiss system. It provides guarantees of full disclosure at various stages in the process. So if you haven't gotten the documents you want, maybe that's your lawyer's fault, was their conclusion. Mincioni had also argued that he, his right to a fair trial was being denied because there's no separation of power in the Vatican system. That is, the Pope is both the supreme executive and judicial authority, and that's a violation of human rights. The Swiss judges rejected that too, saying, look, there is no evidence that the way the Vatican conducts trials is in violation of accepted legal practice. Now, look, none of that amounts to a finding by the Swiss court that Mincioni is innocent. Okay, let's be clear. But it is the first time the prosecution case has withstood review by any other entity that isn't on the Pope's payroll. And if you're one of the Vatican prosecutors who have basically been getting their teeth kicked in for the last several months, that's got to strike you as good news. We will see if it translates into any momentum in the trial when we get that next hearing on the 25th of this month. All right, second, there was a brief, well, I don't know what to call it, kerfuffle in Germany this week when the Archdiocese of Munich released a report on sex abuse cases in that archdiocese reaching back over, covering several decades. And it included that period from 1977 to 1982 when then Archbishop and later Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, was in charge of the archdiocese. And the report included that there was at least one case during that period of a priest, a guy by the name of Peter Huleman, who had been accused of child sexual abuse in another diocese, the Diocese of Essen, then allowed to come in to the Archdiocese of Munich and serve there without any restrictions or review. Basically, he was just shuffled into another gig where he went on to abuse others. And the German newspaper Der Zeit seized upon that to suggest that it indicated that then Cardinal Ratzinger had been complicit in the cover-up of this guy's sexual abuse. Now look, folks, I know in contemporary journalism, we live in a kind of eternal present where if something happened yesterday, it might as well not have happened at all because none of us have any memory of it and all we can cover is the now. Okay, I know that. But still, guys, this is a pope. Do your homework because this very charge surfaced in 2010 when the abuse crisis was first erupting in Germany. The Huleman case was thoroughly examined at that time and the vicar of clergy in Munich at the time made clear that Cardinal Ratzinger was very much a kind of hands-off manager who, on matters of what was considered routine administration, deferred these things to his subordinates. And at that time, it was the vicar of clergy who made personnel assignments. The vicar acknowledged that he had heard rumors about Huleman's conduct in Essen, but there was nothing in writing felt that there was nothing he can do. But in any event, the Cardinal Archbishop at the time had no knowledge of it and nothing to do with it. 
In other words, this has all been thoroughly picked over, and the conclusion was that Ratzinger's hands were clean. And again, this, I'm sure this kind of thing is going to continue to come up, but I have to admit, for anybody who has any kind of even vague historical memory, it's a little frustrating to see journalism play out this way, but, you know, we are where we are. All right, Cardinal Renner Welke in the Archdiocese of Cologne is another guy who probably wasn't really that disappointed to see 2021 in the rearview mirror. For most of the year, he was engulfed by a burgeoning sexual abuse crisis in the archdiocese. He got into significant trouble when he initially promised that he was going to publish in full all the results of a review of the archdiocese's files, and then he later backtracked on that because, uh, you know, his lawyers were giving him advice and it all became murky. But the takeaway for many people in Germany was simply that Wilkie was trying to sweep things under the rug. Things came to a boil. In the end, in October of last year, he was given a leave of absence by Pope Francis in order to get out of the archdiocese for six months, clear his head, recharge his batteries, try to come in with a clean slate, and he is scheduled to return in March of 2022. Now, they, of course, did not leave Cologne in a vacuum in the meantime. An interim administrator was appointed. This administrator created a leadership team, which involved the Archdiocesan Property Council and some other groups to sort of govern the the archdiocese while there wasn't a resident bishop. Now, one of the things this group did was conduct a thorough review of archdiocesan finances, and they discovered some things that they considered possible irregularities that might mark cases in which canon law was not properly observed in the administration of archdiocesan finances. And they asked the Vatican to come in and conduct an external audit. The Vatican's Congregation for Bishops has agreed to run that audit, but said they won't do it until Welke is back in March. What that means is that what will be waiting on his desk when the Cardinal Archbishop gets back is organizing this external audit, which might expose a whole new source of scandal in the archdiocese, in this case involving money rather than sex abuse. Now, Cologne, you should know, is widely considered one of, if not the, wealthiest archdioceses in the Catholic world. Its property holdings, including the legendary uh, Cologne Cathedral, real estate holdings, investment portfolio, and so on, have long made it considered one of the deepest pocketed Catholic entities in the world. And so a financial scandal there is not going to be a mild spring shower. It's going to be what the Italians would call a tempesta, which means a, a strong thunderstorm. The only thing that Wilkie can hope, I suppose, is that if the thunderstorm breaks out, It is like many Tempeste here in Italy, and it doesn't last very long. All right, fourth on this week's countdown, the Pope and Pets. At his Wednesday general audience last week, Pope Francis got on a jag that is very familiar territory for him. He was talking about declining fertility rates, 
especially in the developing world, a sort of growing tendency towards uh, couples not having children, and you know how that in some ways signals a kind of throwing in the towel on the future. And he wanted to exhort people to be open to the gift of life, to exhort couples to have children, to raise families, because, you know, there's probably no more important service to the future of the human family than that, right? Familiar territory, and so far as it goes, absolutely noble, laudable, good stuff. However, along the way, the Pope took a little detour and it's one he has taken before, to be fair, not the first time he's done this. But every time he does, it raises a cloud of dust. And sure enough, that happened again this time. Because along the way, he sort of wagged his finger at couples who have pets but not children, suggesting that that was selfish, you know, and that raising pets is not the same thing as raising human children. And frankly, one is not a substitute for the other, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Now, here's the thing. And if I may, I want to speak personally just for a moment. My wife and I, like many couples, oh, and the Pope also said, if you can't have your own kids, you should adopt rather than have pets. Or, you know, like, don't, don't let having pets be a substitute for adopting, right? As if, yeah, let's just walk down to the adoption store and pick a, a kid out of the window and cart him home tonight, you know, as if it's just the simplest thing in the world. And here's the thing. My wife and I, you know, like many couples, would love to have children. Like many couples, we have found that somewhat difficult. Like many couples, we have considered adoption. And, and, and I am certainly not saying that we have ruled that out. But what I am saying is that we have discovered it to be far more expensive, time-consuming, complicated, and uncertain than a glib comparison to having pets would make it sound. I would also like to say my wife and I also have pets, or probably the more accurate way of saying it is that there are two pugs who have us. And the thing of it is, we know they're not human kids, okay? I don't have college funds for these pugs. Uh, we're not having them baptized or confirmed or arranging their first communions. You know what I mean? We're not selecting secondary schools for them. We get that these aren't substitutes for human children. But don't tell us that having pets is necessarily an act of selfishness, because I will tell you this, selfishness would be not having these two pugs, who are two of the neediest creatures on the face of the planet, and they occupy an appalling share of our time and energy every day. But that, in fact, after this broadcast, we have to go home and give them baths, okay, just so you know, because we're going to be out of town for a couple of weeks and we don't want the person who's going to be taking care of them to inherit stinky, decrepit, decaying pugs. And so, look, here's the thing. This is one of those unique popal comments that manages to be offensive to everybody he mentions. He, it manages to be offensive to childless couples who are desperately struggling, struggling to have children and also to couples or, or other people who have pets who understand that they aren't human beings, but nevertheless find them sources of great joy and affection and don't believe that it's an act of selfishness to welcome them into their families. And so, look, here's the thing, Pope Francis, we are totally with you on families and new life and the problem of declining fertility. There aren't two people on earth who support you more on those subjects than the two of us. 
but we still managed to be kind of hurt by what you had to say about pets. So we would just ask you to check that particular piece of rhetoric at the sacristy door. And then finally this week, it is often said that when the church in Italy sneezes, the rest of the Catholic world gets a cold. You know, we were at dinner the other night with some friends of ours. One of them was somebody who works in the Vatican. And this person at one point started talking about the church in Italy. And it really doesn't matter what he said. What, what is interesting is how he prefaced his comments. He said, you know, everybody talks about how the church in Italy sets the tone for everyone else, that what happens here, you know, is sort of the model that everybody else looks to. And, and said that as if it is just an accepted truth about the Catholic Church, because let's face it, it pretty much is. And so, you know, whether you're Italian or not, what happens here does matter. And something big is going to happen here before very long, because at the end of May, Cardinal Gualtiero Bassetti of Perugia, the current president of the Italian Bishops' Conference and very much Pope Francis's guy, is going to turn 80. And therefore, he is going to have to leave his various gigs, including his presidency of the Italian Bishops' Conference. What that means is a new president has to be chosen. Now, you know, for most of history, well, I mean, since Italy has had a bishops' conference anyway, the Pope directly picked the president of the conference. It was the only bishops' conference in the world in which that was true. Well, Pope Francis, you know, whatever, didn't like that, said it was anti-democratic, and so wanted the Italians to pick their own, but they wouldn't, they liked their special tie to the papacy, frankly, and they didn't want to totally give it up. So they came up with this kind of convoluted system in which the Italian bishops come up with a terna, that is a list of three names for their president that they propose to the Pope, and then the Pope picks the guy. And so obviously you can imagine that there's a great deal of speculation in Italy these days about which names are going to be on that terna when it gets to Pope Francis. Right now, the smart money seems to be that there are two names at least that will probably be on it. One is Cardinal Matteo Zuppi of Milan, and the other is Cardinal Augusto, which by the way is the name of our pug, Augusto Logiudice of Siena. Both are native Romans, born and raised in Rome. Both are former auxiliary bishops of Rome, appointed to those roles by Pope Francis. Both were, therefore, obviously, appointed to their current gigs by Pope Francis. Both are very much considered Francis guys. Most people seem to think that the favorite in this undeclared race might be Zuppi of Milan. Zuppi is a product of the community of San Egidio. That's Pope Francis's favorite Catholic movement. Born here in Rome, very, very involved in work for the poor, migrants and refugees, ecumenism, and a religious dialogue, all the stuff that Pope Francis likes. They're kind of his go-to outfit. Zuppi is, uh, by all accounts, an incredibly affable guy. I've never met anyone who dislikes him personally. He's considered a, a dynamic figure, strong leader, and probably in the Pope Francis era would be the obvious choice. Now, that is important not simply because it makes Zuppi a kind of role model for other bishops around the world, but because 
in the always Samizdat, you know, underground, subterranean conversation about the next pope, it also positions the 66-year-old Matteo Zuppi to, you know, maybe get some attention, maybe get some love. We will see how that plays out. Uh, all right, you can find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about today on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. While you're on the site, you will find a nice and easy, very handy-dandy method to make a financial contribution to Crux. If you are able to do that, we would be deeply appreciative. Our independence is our most precious commodity, but it ain't free. We need your help to pay for it. All right, we will talk to you next Monday. In the meantime, over the course of the next seven days, I want you to stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.